This is episode 89 with New York City Marathon champion, the 2004 Olympic silver medalist in the marathon, and the winner of the 2014 Boston Marathon, making him the first American to win the race in 31 years. Yes, I'm excited, Mr. Meb Kaflesky. Buckle up, runners. You're in for a real treat today. I am speaking with one of the greats, one of the best endurance runners, not just in the United States, but in the world. He's a three-time Olympian, a silver medalist, and he's won two major marathons, both New York and Boston, and he's authored three books. His first was Run to Overcome, his next was Meb for Mortals, and his latest book is 26 Marathons, What I've Learned About Faith, Identity, Running, and life from each marathon I've run. He joins me today to talk about his story, how he hid from the military in Eritrea as a small child to avoid being caught, walked miles to get wood for the fire to heat his dinner, and ultimately immigrated to the United States, where he found running and became the person he is today. It's an incredible journey, and no one can tell it like Meb can. He's at times funny, but at times deeply reflective about his past and how that perspective influences his running today. I think you'll appreciate how competitive Meb can be, as you'll find out very soon, but maybe more importantly, how much he loves the sport of running and understands that running is about a lot more than just running. I hope you get as much out of this conversation as I did talking to Meb. I also want to take some time to thank today's sponsor, Hemp Daddy. Hemp Daddy's Therapeutics offers a line of CBD products to help you recover by sleeping more soundly and reducing stress and anxiety. Check out everything they have at hempdaddies.com and stay tuned for after my conversation with Meb for a brief discussion with Caleb Simpson, the ultra runner who started the company. Without any further delay, please enjoy my conversation with Meb Kofleski. Meb, thanks so much for being here. Thanks, Jason. Thanks for having me. So Meb, it's kind of surreal to be speaking with you today. You're someone who I've looked up to as a runner since I started running myself about 20 years ago. And, you know, what I've always loved about you is your willingness to meet fans, to talk about your story, and just to be an ambassador to the sport. And it's not every day that we have the chance to catch up with an Olympian who's won so many major marathons. So thanks so much for your time. Jason, it's uh, nice to meet you via Skype, but uh, it's always nice to be able to meet and greet fellow runners because we have something that is really common ground that put us together. You know, that we know when you go 5K or 10K or half marathon or full marathon or the training that goes into it to have appreciation and the respect for each other. And I felt that every runner has something to share with you. And I'm just always honored people look up to me as an example to be an ambassador for them. Yeah, that's an interesting and I think very unique aspect to the sport of running is that, you know, you can be an Olympic medalist or you can be someone who's just getting started with their first 5K and you're experiencing a lot of the same things. And I think that's so unique and powerful about the sport. Well, you know, when we have a point of starting point and finishing point, you know what it takes to get there and you have a mutual respect to say, hey, whether you're trying to qualify for Olympic trials or you qualify, you're trying to qualify for the Olympic or you're doing your first distance run where there's a 5k after the marathon you understand that it is you know it's hard it's difficult it's challenging and you can relate to people and you say hey when i ran the half marathon somewhere you know exactly what you went through and and challenging but that's the uniqueness of our sport that 
sometimes also we share the same roads, whether you're running at the Boston Marathon or New York City Marathon or wherever you are, you can say, hey, you know what, an, an elite athlete can come down to your local 5K or 10K or half marathon and you can see them in tangible. That's the beauty of it. You know, you can be in the same elevator, you could be in the same uh, starting line corral, or you could be in the middle of the run and just having a good time. And I think that's how the, the sport running unites us together. Yeah. And, you know, we shared the same roads in 2014 when I ran the Boston Marathon. It was the year that you won. I remember hearing when I was, uh, you know, in the last couple miles of the race, you know, Meb won, you know, everyone was going crazy on the side of the road. And it gave me a huge boost, you know, as those last couple miles at Boston. It's just incredible. Um, now, Meb, you have a new book coming out, 26 Marathons, and uh, I want to kind of take a step back and talk a little bit more about how it all started for you. Uh, you know, I don't think it's a surprise that you grew up in Eritrea, you experienced uh, a lot of adversity, and you immigrated to the U.S. when you were young. Uh, I'd love to hear, you know, how you think your childhood prepared you for distance running, if at all. Definitely, my childhood has molded me to be the person that I am. Um, because when you don't have opportunities or chances, or when you're born in a war, and you know, obviously, I was at one point I was so I was so hungry that I remember one day eating dirt just to survive. So when you have those upbringing, or you seen military with you know they they taking kids who are 12 years old or older to be soldiers. You don't take things for granted. You know, we never had it. My brothers and I never had really the opportunity to go to school. But my parents wanted to do something uh, positive to try not control. I can't control your future, but try to give the best thing that you can to provide for your kids. And my dad was wanted by the Ethiopian military. So he's going to get killed or he's going to get prison. So my mom encouraged him to try to save his life. And, and hopefully that if he can does make it a safe land that he will look after us and you know, the 225 miles that he walked in about seven days was not the biggest chance that he was faced. What he faced, faced was, you know, six kids and a wife behind. Is he ever going to see us ever again? So he was he was having nightmares. You know, there's no hotels. There's no uh, places to sleep. He didn't have any money or he would sleep on a tree sometimes uh, because if he sleeps on the ground in the wilderness, there's hyenas, scorpions, snakes and uh, military that can that that can take him, and so he would just sleep with his legs crossed on a tree, and sometimes he have to have nightmares and things things like that. But uh, fortunately for us, he made it. You know, the, with the grace of God, he still believes that if he can make that journey, God bless him indeed. And uh, and when he lived in Sudan, he lived odd jobs. He lived there for a year and a half, and then eventually made it to Italy, where I have a sister, half sister who lives there, and her mom was there, and she helped him escape. Uh, to Italy, Milano, and when he got to Milano, he had odd jobs, cleaning offices or be custodian and traveling in snow. And one day, um, uh, my sister's mom introduced him to his boss, and they both worked together for his for the for their boss and asked him, you know, one day my dad asked him, you know, can you loan me ten million lire, ca uh, ten million lire in Italian? Uh, that was about six thousand US dollars, nineteen eighty six, and. That was to save the family. And Dr. Brindici, their boss, said, is that to save one person or to save everybody? And he said, no, with the money that we have saved, it will save everybody. And Dr. Brindici, she gave him a 10 million lire cash. And he said, this is uh, not a loan, it's a gift. And that's how we got saved. And uh, so, yeah, the you know, there was a lot of people that it's a team effort. You know, my dad himself didn't do it. And my mom has to be the, the husband, the wife in Eritrea, bear in mind. In Eritrea, when she's raising six kids, there's no 
no electricity, no running water, and she have to farm the the land so you can with crops and hope that it rains and she have to chop it off and take the the haze and the grain separated through cows and you know doing the labor stuff so it was not an easy task go to the store and get a milk or bread and she has to make it from scratch and so you know with both my parents work extremely hard and uh, you know and we seized the opportunity that was provided in front of us so when we came to the united states on october 21st 1987 Almost 32 years ago, they, you know, they told us this is the land of opportunity. Don't make sure you don't waste those opportunities because we didn't have them. Your uncles didn't have them. Your cousins don't have them. So make sure you utilize it the best you can. Work hard. Make us proud. And, uh, you know, my dad woke us. They woke us about 430 in the morning to learn uh, uh, English through the dictionary. So that's the start of it. And but, you know, through hard work and perseverance, uh, it molds who you are. You know, you don't take things for granted when you are preparing for the Boston Marathon or New York City Marathon or any, any other races uh, after over, having overcome the adversity that I did, you know, you just want to maximize it. And if you, run, if you run or win and then you feel proud and if you don't, then you say, you know what, it's a lot better scenario than it was when I was a child. So you kind of put things in perspective. Yeah, I can't imagine how much that does put things in perspective and how your life has changed so much over the years because of your running. Now, do you play any kind of uh, organized sports as a kid? Were you active in, in any kind of way, uh, you know, with, you know, structured athletics? Yeah, I mean, the you know, when I was in Eritrea, some of the fun stuff that we did was we didn't have a soccer ball. So we what we made was a, a, a sleeve of a shirt or a sweater. You know, it's old and they got thrown away the sweater. So we'd cut the <laughs> the sleeves part of it and we would uh, knit, knit the bottom part of it and then stuff it with as much plastic as you can. with plastic uh, basically to make it round and also bouncy. And then we would, uh, to make two layers of it, you know, and then you have a soccer ball. So a makeshift soccer and that's how, what my first love, my first passion was soccer. I didn't know running was a sport to be honest until, uh, Probably late in you know in seventh grade when we came to the United States. I'm changing a little bit the thing, but when I came here, when the United States, they said, uh, "How you want a kid in the neighborhood?" Said football. You know, we didn't speak English, so they said we heard football. And growing up in Italy for a year and a half, football is soccer. So we were ready to play soccer, and <laughs> for our sake, they brought a football, and that was American football. We were you know ready to 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 throw. We like football. You know, <laughs> well, this is not football, and we have to you know. But anyway, we throw the ball and try to run with, catch it and stuff. But no, I love soccer. It's my first love. And then uh, my brothers and I, I have two older brothers, we used to dribble the soccer ball from uh, a North Park area where the uh, Kinney Full Locker or with, uh, Kinney or Slash Full Locker now was held at Morley Field. And we would, you know, it's half a mile away from our apartment. We would go over there and we see people running. I'm like, why are the people running? They're crazy. They're not chasing anything. You know, that's when I was first introduced to running. And then uh, a year later in seventh grade is uh, when a P teacher said, if you run hard, you're going to get a good grade or uh, DRF if you mess around or and you get a T-shirt with it that says Roosevelt Junior High Mile Club T-shirt that you get if you break 615. And uh, I know I, I want to make my parents proud. I want to get an A in the class. So I ran as hard as I can. And then at the end of the run, uh, the coach looked at his watch and said, he couldn't believe it. He says, you run a 520 mile and, uh, on seventh grade, and he said, you're going to go to the Olympics. Bear in mind, this is 1988, an Olympic year, probably, you know, started school in September or late of August, which probably the Olympics were going on, but 
I was not aware of any Olympics at all. I'm like, um, did I get an A? <laughs> and I'm pointing to the shirt. They know it was the shirt. I didn't have no idea what the word Olympic meant. So I have to go to my dad and ask him what it meant. And he says, oh, um, what'd you do? I'm like, I ran 520 in the miles. Like, uh, um, tell the truth. I don't think even your oldest brothers even ran that fast. So, you know, and then eventually explained to me how the five rings, the five continents and things like that about so it was uh, definitely overwhelming, but I wanted to make sure I wanted an A and a T-shirt when I was in seventh grade. <laughs> well, you were you certainly got it. Fifty-five seconds under that that six fifteen barrier for someone who's just getting started with running—that's pretty great. Um, now I'm sure you know having your gym teacher say you're going to go in the Olympics, and you know you learning what the Olympics are. At what point did you actually think to yourself, you know, after you've been running for a little while, wow, I might be able to do this professionally? You know, his, my P teacher name is Dick Lord. In fact, I've been in touch with him ever since probably high school and then college. And then now as a professional, I just got inducted to this San Diego Hall of Fame just uh, about a couple months ago. And he was there to witness that. And uh, so it's a blessing that I have kept in touch with him. But I think for me, when I realized this can be a, a sport that I can make something was, you know, people knew like in, uh, that can get me a scholarship to college because in seventh grade, I mean, in uh High school, my yearbook is filled out. It says, don't forget the small people <laughs> or we'll see you with an Olympic medals and things like that. They didn't know about marathoning. They knew I was a miler and two miler, the top, top miler and two miler in the nation. But so they knew that people knew that education, I mean, running can open opportunities. And when I got to full scholarship to UCLA, I was not, the, I mean, I was the best guy in the team, but I was not the same best guy in the conference. But I was a goal oriented, you know, I want to be the best in the school and then I want to be the best in the league. And then hopefully down my junior, senior year, I wanted the best NCAA ch uh, champion and both in track and cross country. But to answer your question was 1980, uh, 1997 was the first time I went indoor 5k on the track. Um, I won outdoor 5k, 10k double when they had a 5k prelim in the, in the prelim also. And then my senior year, which is also uh, in 97, uh, I want all that 40, four NCAA in one year. And I said, oh, maybe this could be a profession. So that was, I remember, I'm like, well, maybe I can make an Olympic team. Maybe I can make a living out of this. Maybe I should, I should turn a pro. But then I thought about it just because my parents always emphasized that key to life is education. Make sure I, uh, I graduated and I stuck around for Another two years. I finished my algebra in '98, but uh, I had one more year left to, to finish my academics. I stuck around, and then ever since after graduating in 1999 uh, from UCLA, I gave 110% to my running, see what it could take me, and it has to take me way beyond my wild imagination. So I just wanted to wear, you know, see and hope that I can make an Olympic team, and uh, you know, wearing that USA jersey for the first time was in Sydney, Australia, and the Olympic was a dream come true. And then obviously, before I left the stadium, I had the they had a premium for the 10K. I made the Olympic team in the 10K. Uh, I finished 12, but we left, and I had the flu that was, you know, when you're in the athlete village, you get sick and you do crazy stuff. So I got sick, uh, and then. Uh, Basically, before I finished 12 and I ran my personal best, before I left the stadium, I said, you know what? I'm happy to wear that red, white, and blue but to be an Olympian, but I want to do something greater, and I want to win a medal for our country. That's all I was thinking before I left the stadium. And honestly, when I made that goal, I didn't think it was going to be in the marathon because I haven't done a marathon yet. It was in the 10K, and then the following year, 
I ended up running a American record in the 10K, improved by 40 by 40 seconds. So, and then I, and then the rest is history. I just kept improving and improving, and uh, I tried a marathon. And I did my first marathon in 2002. It's such an incredible story, and I hear you talk about how your parents told you when you got here, "This is the land of opportunity." And then I hear you saying how you want to be the best on the team. You want to be the best in the conference. You want to represent your country. You want to win a medal for your country. Have you always been this ambitious? And, and does it relate to your parents telling you, don't waste this opportunity? Almost definitely. I mean, for me, I, w- I have always been a goal setter. You know, I'd rather cross my, and I make them reachable goals. I don't make them like, oh, yeah, I want to win a gold medal. No, I want a medal. I don't care what color the medal will be. Or I want to make an Olympic team, you know, whether it's first, second, third, as good as it can be. You know, you go into the Olympic team. So, you know, those goals were always uh, oriented with me and uh, visionary, you can say it. But at the same time, understand that those opportunities, yes, the back of my head, those opportunities, those chances that are provided for me, I want to make sure I maximize them to the best that I can. And uh, sometimes it comes with a price because I did overwork sometimes. I mean, I, I always say um, I don't want anybody to outwork me. I want to be the best that I can. I was, I was talented, obviously, very talented, but I was not always the talented, the most talented guy on, on the field or the most talented guy in the world. But I want to make sure that I do the best that I can to work hard. And you know, t- uh, oh, oh, hard work will always, will always overtake talent. And, uh, and I want to make sure I want to be able to do that. Yeah, I think there's a line that I love that is something like, hard work beats talent when talent fails to work hard that I remember just being in high school. And that was my mantra as a cross country runner. And uh, I I improved a lot. And I probably got a lot better than I would have if I didn't embrace all that hard work. Uh, And it's certainly a great mindset to have as a marathoner, someone who, you know, obviously, this is not only a sport that requires a lot of hard work, but the marathon itself is such a unique distance and a, a challenging distance. When was your first marathon? You know, I think they've done a study, um, IQ versus grit. And then today we went and spoke at an elementary school here in Virginia Beach named Creed, Creed School. And they had on, you know, they had a, a sign that says, got grit, question mark, you know. And uh, I think sometimes uh, talent can take you so far, but grit will always overtake that or hard work will always be uh, talent. And uh, for me, um, I was, you know, especially being sec- English being second language, I worked, worked, worked extremely, extremely hard in high school, worked extremely hard in college. And then uh, and they say, you know, marathon is a great metaphor for life. And then a marathoner, you have to have the grit. <laughs> you know, we can't have shortcuts about all. You just got to go out there mile by mile. So um, always people always have told me that I would be a beautiful marathon runner uh, when I was in high school. And I was shocked to learn how far how far it was. They told me it was 26.2. I'm like, no, I don't want to do that. I'm a, I'm a miler and two miler. I want to be the best miler and two miler that I could be or 5K, 10K, the best that I could be. And, uh, you know, in 2002, though, you know, I made the Olympic team in 2000. I want to win another medal for our country. And then 2001, uh, I broke the American record in the 10K. And then 2002 was an odd year. There was no Olympic year or there was not, it was not a world championship year. So I was like, let me just try this marathon thing that the people have been telling me about. And uh, I was somewhat excited but nervous at the same time. And I did the, the New York City Marathon, my first, ma- my first one in 2002. And I got, you know, pretty excited going First Avenue. Everybody just screaming tunnel sounds and uh, got me a little bit going and I'm like oh this is not that bad I think I could win this marathon and 
got it down to four people and uh, me and three other Kenyans and I said, you know what? I think a worst scenario, I got fourth place and best scenario, I could still win and uh, uh, and then about from 16 to 19, I was probably in the lead. And then at 19, I started getting, it was 38 degree, I took away my arm, uh, arm warmers uh, uh, sleeves and then you know, put cold water on my head and then bear, bear in mind it was 38 degrees. That water's been there for three, four hours. It was freezing. It kind of shut my engine off. And I threw my gloves away, my beanie away, and I start, you know, getting cold. Instead of doing nice cadence, I start stomping the ground. And, uh, you know, I, I guess I thought I was going to win. I thought I was going to be fourth place. Now I was going the other way around. Maybe fifth, maybe sixth, maybe seventh. And then eventually I end up getting uh Ninth place. Uh, I ended up running in the, the A standard at the time to get was uh, 212, sub 212. And I ran in 212, 35 seconds. And I missed by 35 seconds to get the A standard for the Olympics. And uh, obviously, I was devastated by the time. I was devastated that my body was not functioning properly. And it took me forever to get the last two miles in. And uh, uh, I said, this is my first and last marathon. I never wanted to ever do it again. <laughs> and my mom, my parents were there. Uh, my mom was there. I said, you know what? No more 5K, 10K. No more marathon for you. Don't do it. <laughs> my dad was trying to there. To, um, I was frozen. So my dad was there to give me a little bit of massage and things. But uh, And then I went back to Eritrea uh, two weeks later to my roots for the first time in 13 years or so. I was going over there. And uh, you know what? I saw how as a child I used to go to... Two to, two to three miles to get woods from climbing trees or find le leaves, put in a basket on my head to be able to take it home to have fire so you can cook your food or boil your water. And you have to go two, two to three miles to get the water out of, water out of, the, out of, the, out of the well. And I said, you know what? I guess that temporary discomfort that I went the last 40 minutes or so was not too bad. So I wanted to do another marathon. So that's the reason I ended up coming back to do another marathon. Yeah, it's good that perspective comes back and it really teaches you a lot of things. Um, you know, what were you most surprised about with that first marathon? Because it, it obviously didn't go the way that you were hoping to. And you went from thinking you might win to getting ninth place and missing the standard. You know, from someone who was a very experienced runner at that point, but was running their first marathon. What about the marathon? You know, do you come away with and say, I was not expecting that? You know, uh, the wall, I guess, you know, the, if people talk about the wall, they can tell you to pace yourself, you might hit the wall. And that wall was there vividly for me. You know, when I hit it, it you know, you know, you can't see it, but your mind says go, your body says no. And it was the weirdest feeling. So that was the first reality check. And I tell the New Yorker runners, you know, on my first one, I learned my, P I got my PhD. I learned what to do, what not to do. And because I got excited, you know, the overwhelming of the crowd at First Avenue to, took over my control. You know, I could have control, but I said, you know what, this is fun. I want to be able, you know, I want to be able to go for contention for a win, and uh, I went for it. And obviously, it taught me, you know, respect the marathon because sometimes, <laughs> like you say, you know, you say easy, easy. I got it, I got it. But I learned from my first one that it was not easy. It was, it was a tough to do a marathon. It's very challenging. Very. It can break your heart and it can break your spirit because and how difficult it is. You crawl basically, you crawl on into the finish line. And but I'm glad I did that because you know I learned everything what to do and what not to do. And I throw away my gloves and beanie away. I would, now I just when it's cold I just still tuck them in and then if I need them put them back on and things like that. So uh, it can be 
it can be devastating, but at the same time, exhilarating to be able to do a marathon. You know, when you win, it's beautiful and everything is seamless. Everything goes flow the way it should be. But then it makes you realize, you know, that one day can be that. And the next next month or next uh, marathon, next time you do a marathon, it can be the other way around. So you always have to be humble. You always have to respect the distance. And because in the marathon, it could change back and forth. Yeah, that's that's something I think everyone learns about the marathon after they've done them a couple times. And it's funny here you talk about New York City marathon because that was my first marathon too. And I had a very similar experience. Uh, got to about mile 20 and hit that wall, first experience with the wall. And it was such a shock. I had never even experienced anything like it. And any runner who's never run a marathon, um, you know, you're in for a whole new world of experience when you get to that point in the race and your body um, starts failing you. It's such a it's such a unique experience that I think is very uh, particular to the marathon itself. Um, now, Meb, with your new book, you are talking about all the lessons that you've learned from all the marathons that you've run. And, you know, I'd love to hear some of those lessons. You know, you're someone who's been running competitively for decades. And now what goes through your head when you're there you go. <laughs> there's that there's that book. You know, I can't wait to read it myself. I'm getting a copy, I think, next week. Um, but what what goes through your head when you're standing on the starting line before a marathon now? Is it Anything different than what you might have been thinking, you know, maybe 18 years ago when you first started running marathons? No, for sure. I mean, we uh, we changed our perspective. And sometimes when I was just getting started, I'm like, uh, am I going to make it? <laughs> you know, you have that doubt that say, am I going to be able to make it? You know, how am I supposed to go? You know, sometimes we do, you know, the key to, the key to success or to life is preparation. And then when you go on five minute pace what i was trying to do in the new york city marathon you could only go about 15 miles at altitude and you're like oh how am i supposed to get those 11 miles <laughs> uh, how am i going to go the distance but through intervals tempos and long run things will happen in fact i was fortunate enough to have dina caster as a you can call a mentor to say you know what don't worry it's, everything comes together on race day but you have those questions uh, uh doubts maybe you know what am i the most ready guy here or is there others who who are more ready than i am but it's just said you know what I'm going to go out there, get the best out of myself, keep pushing. And, uh, you know, you know that it's going to be challenging at times, but you have to have a mantra that says, you know what, I'm going to dig deeper. Am I willing to hurt more than the other person next to me? Um, Marathon, you know, it's going to hurt at one point. You'd rather hurt a mile 24, a mile 23, or a mile 25 than versus mile 18. Because when you hurt a mile 18, it becomes an ultra marathon. You know, the the, the finish is not there uh, quickly as you'd like to. But if you hit a mile... 23 or 24 and you're like you know what you can cut it out and say you know what i got only got two more miles to point two or whatever and it can happen but the lessons are you know under promise over deliver you know sometimes going to a race like the you know the, the alabama trials in 2004 i was not ready for, for for the race you know i was i was under train but you know i, I ended up getting second place to call pepper and you know, don't cut you don't cut yourself short. Sometimes you know, sometimes you're like, I don't know if I could do this. I, I can't do this in life or in marathon. But you surprise yourself sometimes by by doing the small things that make the big difference. Eventually, it will come in handy in your life. And one of the other one is just, you know, go out there, take risk. You know, in life, you know, and you know, don't say I can't do, it, can't do it. You gotta take a risk. You know, for me, like the Boston 2014, you know, I took a risk. You know, I was five miles into the run. I said, you know what? Something intuitively told me, 
in their strength, I guess, that you can call it and say, hey, go out there and uh, take a risk. You know, you can see the signs on the street or we can see posters, Boston Strong, and then you're like, you know what, give them up strong. If they catch you, they catch you. But if they didn't catch you, guess what? Make them earn it. And, you know, when you take a risk, whether it's business and life and other things, it becomes, in, you know, within yourself. You know, I'm not saying just take any dot in the chart. When you have done the preparation and I'm wearing a watch, I can measure myself what what pace I'm going. I'm not going world record pace by any means. I'm within myself. Know what you can do and cannot do. And within those things that you can do, sometimes you got to go for it. Sounds like a lot of what you've learned is confidence in your own abilities and a familiarity with the distance itself so that you know what you're going to be feeling like once you cross mile 20 and you get into those final miles of the race. You know there's going to be some adversity there. You know you're not going to feel good, but you're going to accept it and tackle it. Absolutely. You know, uh, you know in the marathon or in life, there's, you know, there's adversity that we're going to, uh, going to face and disappointments. And but, you know, you can't always throw the towel and you got to say, you know what, the next day is a fresh day. You have to start somehow, some way to be able to go. And, you know, when I ran the 2012 Olympic Games uh, in London, I was ready to throw the towel at mile 21 because people often ask me, do you enjoy the scenery? You know, and I usually am not because I'm concerned or worried about my competitors, how the form looks like, what kind of, you know, what their mechanics looks like. So I'm analyzing that. But that day. My goal going to the Olympic was, as my last Olympic, potentially my last Olympic, uh, I thought it was 99% done, that it was going to be my last Olympics. I said, you know what? You know, I've already signed up for New York City Marathon. I'm not getting my goal to get a medal or to be top 10. I was 21st place. And I'm like, you know what? Just enjoy, you know, stop here and, and just get ready for New York. And I said, I looked down my jersey. I said, you know, I'm wearing the USA jersey. And uh, how many people would love to be in my shoes? And my daughters uh, are at the finish line and 49 other fa- family and friends were at the finish line and say, they're waiting for me. And if I'm going to tell the kids to do the best that I can, dropping out is not my best. You know, and I said, you know what, no matter how many people pass me from 21st place, I got to get to that finish line. I thought I was going to get 50th and whatnot. But positive thinking, being in the moment kind of changed you know, change things. And then, so to, surprisingly, I started moving up. You know, I, I prayed. I said, like, God, help me get to the second group, you know. And then the second group, there was eight of us running. I said, maybe I could beat two guys or maybe I could beat five. And the next thing I you know is, like, with five, with um, six, uh, 5K left, my, my coach, uh, he pointed out six fingers. He says, and I was running, and like I said, Japanese guy. And, and uh, at that point, it's like, okay, you know, if I, I could hold on, just finish strong at the end, I'll kick him. I can, uh, you know, <laughs> I can, I can, I can get a uh, fifth place. But and then you start thinking, thanks in your head. It's like like the wall, two miles. Like I did hit the wall in New York City Marathon on my first marathon. I see somebody ahead of me that hit, probably have hit the wall. All I can see is a green jersey. I said, you know what, you know, just keep pushing, keep pushing. Maybe you can get fourth place. And you don't know. Sometimes you, you know, I talk about that. Our sports kind of tainted to do drugs and stuff. I'm like, well, if that guy finished fourth and he ended up fifth place, if I didn't even know who was in the front, if one of them get tested positive for drugs, that fourth place moves to the bronze medal. So go get that bronze medal. You know, try to get them and get that fourth place. Just you never know down the road. And then, you know, you're interacting with people and then you see the, our flag on the side on the left side. You're like, should I, get rough, should I grab the flag? Should I not? Should I grab the flag? Should I not? But because they the Santos who I pass from uh, fifth place to fourth place is right behind me trying to catch me, and I'm like, no way, I'm gonna, I'm gonna move and then tuck the, 
tuck the flags under on my elbows and start running because you know he's trying to catch you and then obviously i end up getting, amazingly i came in fourth so overcoming adversity overcoming challenges and be in the moment here i am one minute uh, mile 13 i was thinking dropping out enjoy the view and the scenery and then here you know an hour and 10 minutes later an hour five minutes later uh, you know i i am fourth uh, at the olympic games so be in the moment don't 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 don't, don't throw the towel so easily well, it's just incredible hearing you like kind of recap the last couple miles of the race. I'm, I'm kind of on the edge of my seat. I'm, I'm sweating a little bit. I'm getting excited just hearing it. And, you know, it sounds so much like one of the lessons that you've learned from all of these marathons over the years is this very simple lesson of staying positive when things aren't necessarily going your way. And, you know, you th- this is this one race you're ta- you're describing is such a great example of that because you kept pushing forward. You tried to look for the silver lining in things and not just kind of dwelling on the negative aspects of the race. And you ended up having a, a very good race. And, um, you know, I have to ask you, Meb, when is running hard for you? Are you ever in a place where you're not always so positive and, and looking at the bright side of things? Because I think, uh, you know, a lot of runners look at elite athletes and they think that, you know, everything's always going well for you. You're always, you know, mentally strong. When is running hard for you? I mean, running is, it's hard for everybody, even for the elites. It's just, you know, we make it, we do a hundred and 130 miles a week. We try to make it look as easy as possible. But, um, you know, for someone like someone like myself, it, it does come easier than most other people. Um, but, you know, I think the, um, 2013 New York City Marathon is probably one of the other ones that I, you know, I, my body just gave up on me. You know, some people say you can, you can, you can go through pain. I'm like, absolutely. When you win it, you don't, you don't notice. Or when you podium and in the, in the, on the Olympic, you don't notice because the endorphins kick and any your dreams are becoming a reality. You try to smile, look great, and whatnot, but then the next day you can't even walk. You know. But so in 20, 2013 New York City Marathon, my training was not ideal, but the competitive guy that I am, I just, I just went for it. You know, I, I wanted to put it on the line and whatever happens, happens. But at 19.2 miles, uh, my mind says, lift your leg, go the next, you know, next, next mile, go, go. My body said, no way. So I have to stop. I really have to stop. And I cannot lift my leg just to make a stride. So when you are hit the wall or when you have no energy, you have no energy, it's done. But, you know, then you can look at look at a positive way that you can because, you know, 2013 New York City Marathon was special for many reasons because 2013 New York Boston Marathon, the bombing happened. 2012 New York City Marathon got canceled because of Hurricane Sandy. And technically that was supposed to be my last my last marathon because uh, I was ready to retire at that point. And after Nike kind of didn't renew my contract in 2011. So I said, you know what? I can walk. I know how to feel the wind. I know how to run to 20, to 12, to 09. So, but... I want to get to the finish line, but my, my mind, I was thinking, how am I going to convince the people that the shuttle that comes when the elite athlete dropped out or they on the sideline, they, there's a shuttle that picks us up and then I, it was a cold day. I'm like, that van sounds really nice. It's going to be nice and warm and probably have food, but I want to get to that finish line. And how am I going to convince them not to get, you know, drag me into that van? And eventually my fellow runners kind of supported each other and hey, come on, man, let's go, let's go. And then with about 5K left, uh, Mike Cassidy, a local guy from uh, who I met that morning from Staten Island, uh, encouraged me, come on, maybe you can do this. I'm like, well, I'll try like I tried with the other guys that went by me, but 
I said, okay, let's, I draft out of him, behind him, and said, let's help each other and encourage each other to get to that finish line. And it was a magical finish because we were there for each other. I would take a lead sometimes, and he would take the lead other times, and he was stronger on up the hill. I was stronger on the downhill, just let, let gravity take me. So, but coming the last 400, 500 meters, he was a much more stronger than I was. He can have gone, but the camaraderie of being together, finish across together, we held hand in hand, in hand time after finish, and that's how our friendship began. And, you know, so it is time when you challenge yourself, when you say, no, I can't do it. Find something positive that are amongst of you. There's thousands and hundreds of people next to you. Just feed that energy and get you to the finish line. And once you do that, that doesn't mean that's your best day, but you can set your goal for the next one. You know, that marathon is behind you. Sometimes when you didn't deliver that you expect to deliver. And it's okay to say, you know, I did this on my worst day. Next time when I hunt, when it clicks, when it's, I'm 100%, it's created even better, better outcome coming. So you have to keep that dream alive. Yeah, I'm glad to hear you speak about you thinking that you might have retired back in 2012. I think the entire running community is grateful that you didn't retire in 2012. Um, and, and I think it's also a valuable lesson in terms of when runners have a bad race or they face a series of setbacks, you know, a lot of them, in, in myself included, you know, you kind of start thinking, you know, maybe this is it, you know, maybe this is the end, I'll hang up my, my track spikes or, you know, my racing flats at this point. But often the adversity that you experience in those moments makes you into a better runner and you come out of those experiences better, stronger, faster with a more productive mindset as well. And, and I think, you know, you came back from a lot of adversity and setbacks at that period of time in your running career to, you know, win the Boston Marathon and you did so many incredible things. Um, you know, with all these setbacks and you've had a bunch of injuries, you mentioned losing your your Nike contract back in 2011. Um, I think running is such a unique sport in that it prepares people for setbacks and adversity. Has running taught you any lessons about overcoming these kinds of setbacks in your life? Almost definitely. I think, you know, setbacks and uh, uh, overcoming adversity and disappointment is part of life and part of the sport. You know, when you get injured, it just makes you even more hungrier for the next time. If you can weather the storm, you know, if you can just say, you know what, this is a temporary thing. And there's always a light at the end of the tunnel. It just, you know, can we overcome that fear or can we be persistent, go see therapy if we are injured? So for me, it was very difficult, you know, going out uh, eight, uh, almost eight months without a shoe contract. It was difficult for me. I contemplated retirement then, you know, and uh, I contemp uh, contemplated retirement after the 2008 Olympic trials because, I mean, I lost a good friend of mine, Ryan Shea, and also, you know, um, I'm not going to go to the Olympics, so I tried to rush in to make another Olympic. Runners are driven. You know, we are always driven. The hardest part for, for the average runners or myself is just getting tiny shoes and getting out the door to run or looking for guidance. So if you said, you know what, I have to do this physical therapy, go to the physical therapy, and once they tell us what we need to do, we're going we're gonna to do it. But don't let setbacks uh, not from comeback. You're going to have setbacks, but at the same time, don't let that be kind of like some people. I know a lot of runners that have setbacks, and they kind of live vicariously through me because, oh, I shouldn't have retired. I should have given one more year or two more years. So when I hear those stories, I'm willing to come back stronger for them as well because I know I learn from other people's mistakes. 
I don't always, I make mistakes myself, but I also try to learn from other people's mistakes and say, you know what, don't, you know, I know you did this, what, what could you have changed? And I learned those things to be able to, you know, come back and stronger and, and do the work. And a cross train is another important thing. When you can't run, you can cross train. When you, you know, when you can't, can't cross train, do your therapy. There's always something that you can do to better yourself. Um, and, and that allows you to be, you know what, when you come back, when you, when you, and then when you, when you have setbacks, when you come back for a run, you have that much appreciation for it because something was taken away from you. And when you get it back, it's like, oh, I don't, you know, I'd rather just under train, not overdo it. I'd rather just appreciate that seven mile run. I can't run half marathon, but that seven mile or six mile feels great. So you have an, or 10K in that matter. You know, we didn't have to do full marathon to be happy or to be able to just, but if you do the protocols of training right, it will get you to that finish, to that do a marathon again or half marathon, but you got to take baby steps sometimes. And when you take those baby steps, it's a relief because you are back on doing something that you love doing. You know, I've always found too that it can be very helpful not to make a big decision like retiring or not, you know, trying to go for, you know, registering for a big race, not making those decisions when you're hurt or, you know, you're in a dark place because you're not really fit for those decisions at that time. If you want to quit running, fine, but quit running when you're healthy and you're running PRs because then you might actually be making uh, a valid decision, but you probably are not going to want to quit when you're setting a bunch of personal bests. <laughs> you, well, you were in the right mind frame when you make that decision, to say the least, so if you make one when you run really well. But yeah, I mean... I remember telling my wife and my brother Howie in 2008 before November of 2007 uh, when the trials were held in New York that, you know, I guess I can't go to Beijing because I finished eighth place, but down deep, you know that you can do better things and you know you could have done really well at the trials, but, you know, in the U.S. is fair and square. You get top three, you could go to the Olympics. You don't, you don't. And that's, that's, that's how life is. And I remember telling them before I left, I guess, personal goal, I said, I guess my Olympics will be New York City Marathon. And that's a plain and simple, you know, and I have to do a year and a half of therapy. I didn't win in 2008 um, because the trials were in November of seven. And then, but I wasn't ready. I was registered to do the New York City Marathon, but I pulled out quietly in the t 2008 because I didn't think I was fit enough to to make go for the win. And if I'm not going to be fit enough to go for the challenge of winning, I don't want to, I don't want to partake of that. So, and then I don't want, because if you, when you do that, sometimes you get even more setback. So 2009, I said, this is it. You know, I had the bronze, the silver medalist there. I had the four time Boston marathon champion there. I had James Combay was there, who was a 203 guy. And it was a very stacked, the deepest field they ever assembled. But at the same time, that was for me, that was like my personal gold medal because, and I was wearing that USA jersey and just pointed at USA while I was running, coming to the last home stretch. It was just gratifying because you have that vision, you have that that you say, you know what, I want to win another country in New York for many years and it was almost taken away from me because the injuries or food poisoning and many other things that you can face when you when you get ready for a race but you know that that time everything clicked and uh, I was just proud to be able to wear that USA jersey and bring back the victory to the United States. Now Meb you mentioned something interesting earlier that I want to touch on briefly you talked about cross training and I think we don't hear as much about cross training from pro runners that uh, I think we should. And you were kind of an early and vocal supporter of cross training. I remember years ago, he, uh, reading interviews with you where you talked a lot about cross training. And, you know, normally 
elite runners are always talking about how much mileage they're doing or their crazy workouts and things like that. What is your relationship to cross training and how has it helped your running career? You know, between seasons for me, I always, always rode a bike with my good friend from uh, uh, David, uh, Rich Levy, who lives in San Diego. His son was the same age with me and we didn't go to the same high school, but we're good friends. We trained partners on the weekend. So, so whenever, I guess whenever we got injured or whenever we want to go transition between season, we would go bike ride. And then eventually when I had Achilles uh, injury when I was at UCLA, I started doing agua jogging. You know, I started, I, w- I was not, I'm not a good swimmer, but uh, I would do agua jogging. With, one day I did it with a belt uh, that goes in the middle of your waist. But after that, I learned how to do it without it. And then so that's when I was introduced. And every time I'm in between season, cross country or track and things like that, I would... Uh, when I'm in San Diego, I'll ride a bike and then eventually uh, elliptical. Uh, I start doing elliptical and because you're using different muscles and you're not doing the pounding and you can put extra. So when I was doing elliptical, just, you know, part of my tra- my, my cross training and, uh, you know, we, I'm not, I can do a tempo run in the morning instead of going for another four or five mile run in the afternoon, I would just do a longer cool down. I might go up to four mile cool down and then I would use give me 24 hours to recover and I would just ride my elliptical for the for an hour and a half or two hours and it's not gonna I'm not gonna get injured because I'm, I'm controlling it the you know the the, the steps on and in, in, in the gear so I was I was always been a big prominent of uh, uh, cross training because and hand in hand to go with that is nutrition nutrition is also important you know when you're running when you're 25 or 27 year old you can eat anything and everything and your metabolism so high and and then it doesn't, that does not the same pace after I turned 35, my metabolism just shut down maybe when I was before that. So you start modifying those things and, um, and recovery, recovery is important. And for me, you know, I eventually learned, you know, I can, you know, it was very rigid. Tuesday was intervals, Thursday was intervals, uh, Saturday tempo, Sunday long run. And, and that's fine. I got away with it when I was 25. I was going away until I was 30. But then I have to start changing to spread days in between, you know, to nine-day cycle. So I would go, you know, for the Tuesday intervals, I would go Wednesday and Thursday somewhat easy and recover. And then another day go hard, long run or tempo. And then two days easy. And then it just worked out for me. And especially, you know, when I talk about metformortals in the book that I that was published after winning the Boston Marathon. And, you know, we all trying to, do, to find an edge to be able to be healthy because, you know, being healthy to the starting line is more important than, you know, than overworking. And I, I don't know why, you know, you know, even from a gear, you know, I'm, I'm, to this day, I'm probably the only one of the few or the only person that wear compressions, CEP compression socks, you know, and I don't understand why people can't do that, you know, because it just helps, it reduces the chances of cramping out when you're running. So, but, you know, when I, you know, to your point earlier, you know, it kind of molded me, I get a lot of advice and, overcoming adversity and challenges from Eritrea. When you see things, you read about, you hear things, and you want to be able to be just try whatever you can to help you be the best you can. Well, hearing you talk about your metabolism slowing down at 35, Meb, I just turned 35, so <laughs> maybe maybe I should start watching what I eat a little bit more. <laughs> um, you know, you're going to need more protein and less carbohydrate, put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'll have, to, I'll have to review my diet now. <laughs> um, I think, uh, you know, looking back on your book, and, and I've, like I mentioned earlier, I'm really looking forward to reading it. Uh, you know, you go through every marathon, and you kind of talk about the race and you pull apart some lessons from each marathon. When you look back on your career, do you have a favorite marathon, whether that's a particular 
race uh, course like Boston or New York City or if it's an Olympic Games moment that you had? What's your what's your favorite when you look back on everything? You know, when people ask me, what's your favorite marathon? The automatic answer is New York. And there's a reason why I did it 11, 11 times competitively. And uh, my first one, and I learned a lot from it. And obviously, the New Yorker runners try to have a positive experience, whether you are elite athlete or the middle of the pack or the back of the pack. Is, is a, experience is important to them. So for me, my, uh, it's been an amazing experience for them throughout my career. But my most meaningful victory is the Boston Marathon. When I won in 2014, it was, you know, a dream come true and, you know, greater than myself. Uh, you know, I set that goal before, you know, before the bombing happened by sending a text to Ryan Hall and then to Bonnie Ford from ESPN. I said that afternoon, I said, I hope to be healthy enough. She asked me if I was going to come to the race the next year. I said, I'd like to be here. I have to be here to support, but I hope to be healthy enough to win it for the people. So when you have that vision for a whole year and you know, when when the Red Sox put the, the trophy of the Major League Baseball at the finish line, and you want to do that for the runners on Patriots Day, so you have an internal self talk day, you know, day in day out for a year. So you have in in your back of your head, you know, you train for a purpose, and it's not always the stars align for you. But for me, it all came together, and I took a risk, and I took a big risk. Uh, but experience paid a big big way for me because sometimes when I want a silver medal. That was my fourth marathon. I don't want to take any risk when I had, you know, I just want to win a medal. And when Stefano Boldini made a move for, from Italy, I let him go because I don't know how many of those guys that are faster than me going to come back from behind because they're going to the bad patch and overtake me. So I didn't take that risk. But when it comes to Boston, I said, this is probably going to be my last Boston marathon. And, and you know, they had, you know, I had the victim's name on my bib and uh, just draw inspiration and doing a for a greater cause. And you want to show the 36,000 other people that are trying to own the Boston Street from what was a catastrophic moment for us in 2013 to something positive. Everyone wanted to do the show resilience. They wanted to do something positive, whatever they can to do. And for me to be able to take that risk, it was huge. So that's my most meaningful victory to be able to say at the very least, a very emotional one also. For sure. You know, I know I mentioned that I ran the 2014 Boston Marathon, too. And there was it was a special race. There was uh, because of the bombing the year before. uh, I think the number of fans lining the course were double what they normally were. And it was just an amazing experience to be surrounded by so many fans cheering. I mean, you the the course was lined from Hopkinton to to Boylston Street, three people deep at at the minimum for the entire twenty six point two miles. It was it was an amazing race, and I think it was so much me- it was meaningful to the running community that. Uh, not just an American won that race, but you won that race because of you being such a great ambassador to the sport. And, you know, with Boston coming up in in about a month, Meb, let me ask you maybe my final question. If you could send one piece of advice to all the runners who are lining up in Hopkinton next month, what would you say? Well, what I would tell them is less than, uh, you know, my marathon number eight it says, do what you can to minimize exposure to risk but also accept some things are out of your control. So as you prepare for the race, you've done what you can with a month left. You're going to go out there and get the best you can. Take a little bit of risk. You've done the best you can. But at the same time, Mother Nature, like last year, you can't control it. You know, your pace will tell you to, to slow down. But when you get there, it, Boston is a little bit downhill. <laughs> you'd rather go a little bit slower and have a really strong finish 
So go out there and have fun. I always tell people, run to win. It doesn't mean get first place, but get in the best out of yourself to the body that you have, to the talent that you have, to the training that you put in, and make sure you smile at the end because you're running the Boston Marathon. I love that advice. Thank you so much, Meb. Now, I think I misspoke. I, I saved my, my best question for last, which is, where can we find your new book? <laughs> well, you can find uh, any publishing stores. Uh, um, Barnes & Noble is available. Amazon is available. And uh, I think whatever books are sold is available. And, uh, you know, it's called 26 Marathons. And, you know, obviously, if you want to get it personalized, we're probably going to have it through my website, also marathonmeb.com. And you know, hopefully we can, uh, I, I always love meeting runners and or it can be a great gift for people that you know how to be a marathoner and doesn't have the lessons there. It's not only about marathon, it's about life also, but it's also a great gift to personalize it to somebody who, who touched you, who introduces the marathon and, you know, and we personalize it the best we can. So it's always good to hear from people to say, hey, I get with the map for mortals or run to overcome. Can you give this to my coach or can you give this to my grandson or my granddaughter and these things like that. So now the new book, 26 Marathon, can, you know, can, can help others achieve their goals in the marathon and other takes in life. Wonderful. Well, I'll make sure that when this podcast episode goes live, we'll have links to uh, the book on Amazon and uh, your website as well. If you're doing any uh, additional personalization there, runners should definitely check that out if they want to see it. Meb, thanks so much for spending some time with us today. It's much appreciated and have so much fun this weekend at your, the races. Appreciate it. Thanks so much. I see in the background uh, you're running and I see a spikes, a spikes on your uh, left shoulder, right? Yeah. Here, let me, let me see if I can see what you're saying. Uh, yeah. So I have, um, yeah, those are some of my, you know, medals and yeah. very few of them are first place medals, but uh, yeah, here's my 2014. 2014. 2014 from Boston that that means a lot to me yeah yeah no, those, I, those are my college track spikes that I, I I'm just uh, I, I can't throw them away you know I have to keep them <laughs> <laughs> that's good no I, I I remember wearing those spikes at one point I think probably uh 2002 or 2003 yeah. yeah yeah I was in college from 2002 to 2006 and those were those were my I mean those were my favorite spikes the Nike Ventilus I think yeah. was the name of them Awesome. Awesome. Keep up the good work. How many marathons have you done so far? Uh, I have done four. I've done uh, New York City was my first marathon, too. I did that in 2008. Uh, I ran um, the Boston Marathon in 2014. I ran uh, a small marathon in Washington, D.C. in 2013. Um, and then we'll come back to you. <laughs> Philadelphia. How can I how can right. I forget my PR marathon? <laughs> in 2011, I ran my PR at Philadelphia. Awesome. That's cool. All right. Thanks so much. There we have it. I had so much fun talking to Meb and hearing about his life, his perspectives on running, training, and giving it your all, and learning more about how one of the best runners in the world handles the pressure of running. I hope you'll check out his new book, 26 Marathons, What I've Learned About Faith, Identity, Running, and Life from Each Marathon I've Run. It's now available everywhere. And I also hope that you'll check out today's sponsor, Hep Daddy's Therapeutics. Now, I know that there's some stigma with CBD oil, and you probably have some questions like, how can this benefit me as a runner? Is this the same as weed? Am I going to get high? Is it safe? Well, I actually thought it would be very helpful to share with you a conversation I had with the founder of the company, Caleb Simpson. He's uh, an ultra and trail runner, and after reading a very positive review on trailandultrarunning.com, I knew this was a product worth experimenting with. 
Here's my brief Q&A with Caleb. Let me ask you what I think everyone is thinking. How is this different from pot? What is CBD and is this oil going to get me high? Okay, yeah, that's a great question. It's probably one of the most commonly asked questions I get. And the answer to that's pretty simple. It's like CBD will not get you high. Um, so basically what you have is you have the marijuana plant and you have the hemp plant. And most of the CBD you see on the market right now is produced from the industrial hemp plant. So it has 0.3% less um, 0.3% of THC or less, so there's like zero chance of this stuff getting you high. Um, you just get all the medicinal and therapeutic benefits from the plant, but without those psychoactive effects. So it would be like drinking a kombucha, which is actually 0.5% alcohol. It's just not enough to do anything. Exactly, and, that, and that's an actual example I really like to give is the whole kombucha beer beer example. So they're both alcoholic beverages. But kombucha is a healthy beverage, and it's going to have all these health benefits with a tiny bit of alcohol, but you know, not enough to get you drunk. And the same is similar to CBD. It's got all the health benefits, but no psychoactive effects. For runners, I think the most valuable aspect of a product like this is how it can reduce anxiety, potentially promote a feeling of well-being, and help you sleep more soundly. You know, that's the stuff that recovery is made from. How does CBD help an athlete do this? Yeah, that's a great question. So CBD interacts with our body's endocannabinoid system and also like our serotonin. And so it's kind of similar to the runner's high. And that's what gives us kind of like the relaxed feeling. It's how it helps us with like stress and anxiety. Um, It's also anti-inflammatory. So it's going to help help you recover faster in that regard. And it also just kind of helps calm the mind, which, you know, if you struggle with sleep, if you struggle with turning your mind off at night, um, this will help you kind of turn off your mind and sleep and help you go to sleep faster for one. And also, if you wake up several times during the night, it will also help you sleep more soundly. And as runners know, like sleep is super critical to recovery. And so that's how CBD is able to help athletes. You know, that's my problem. I have a problem not with going to sleep and falling asleep, but with getting up at one, two, three in the morning and then not being able to fall back asleep. And I personally started using this uh, about a week ago. And, you know, I've found that, yeah, I'm sleeping more soundly at night and, and I, I haven't woken up at all where usually I'm good for waking up maybe once or twice a week. So for me, uh, I'm starting to experience those benefits. Uh, and it's something that uh, I love because, you know, it's easy to take, you know, I, I don't have to like eat anything. It's just so simple. Yep. Yeah, totally. Yeah. But it, it is super simple and there, there are loads of benefits from it. Besides the oil, does CBD come in any other types of products? Like you said, we offer the oil, which is kind of the most commonly used product. We also offer capsules and a transdermal cream. Um, What I like about the capsules is they're super easy um, to take. They're convenient. It's very precise dosing. I really like them for traveling or if I'm going on like a long run in the mountains. They're great to carry with me for that. And we also offer a pain cream, which is becoming a very popular product of ours. Um, it's a transdermal cream, so it has a little pump. You just put a little bit on your hands and rub it into your troubled spots, and you can get relief from you know, pain, whether it's in your knees or your elbows or your hands. And it also really helps cut down on inflammation and reduce soreness um, from our long runs. Now I'm curious what happens to you if you just have way too much. So there's 20 milligrams of CBD per serving. You sent me a nice little sample bottle with 30 servings in it. What happens if I just drink this entire bottle? 
You know, I have not put that to the test and don't plan to. Um, but, you know, just the, the research I've done, it's like you can't overdose on CBD. It's not possible. Um, but at the same time, I have no idea how much research has been done about, you know, drinking an entire bottle. <laughs> <laughs> I probably just don't want like four ounces of oil sloshing around in my oh, stomach yeah, anyway. Oh, totally. yeah, totally. <laughs> okay, I hope you found this helpful. Please check out their entire line of CBD products at hempdaddies.com. And that's it for our show today. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for enjoying this episode with Meb. I hope it was helpful for you. And we'll be in touch very soon.